Hello, everyone. Welcome to our show, The View from the Corners Office. In today's episode, we have Neera Sagi. She is presently associated with multiple boards. She has vast experience in public, private, and non-for-profit sectors. And she was the first women president of Bombay Chambers of Commerce and Industry, which was set up in 1836. Welcome to the show, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So let me start by asking you about your childhood. Could you explain how your childhood was? You know, I belong to an army family. My father was in the army and that also in the infantry, which is the toughest wing of the army. So I grew up seeing wars around me, the Pakistan war, the China war, so and the Bangladesh war, of course. So it was, it had two aspects to it, my childhood. One is the sense of, I would say, displacement, moving from place to place but also associated with it, the sense of excitement, moving from place to place. It also had an extreme extent of fear at times when my father was in the wars. And it also had a very joyous upbringing with a lot of community and people around who bonded like a full wholesome family. A battalion was like, everyone was everyone's uncle and sister and brother, and deep friendships. So these long-lasting friendship and the bond that you shared, are, is there any, uh, what values could you say attributed to your childhood or from your childhood? What are the key attributes? You know, first, let me put it very frankly. It was the power of prayer. You know, when your father is in the army and he's facing bombs all over and for 15 days you don't hear about him, the whole household, including you, are praying. So it's the power of prayer. The second is that whatever the adverse, life goes on and you have to ensure that you make the best out of it. You cannot give up. There are ups and there are downs, but it just goes on. You might be lucky that you come out of it unscathed but there are times when you might not be able to do so. But to be able to bounce back, the resilience was something that I learned very, very strongly. The third thing I learned was adaptability. When you're packing up your bags every two years and moving from house to house, state to state, home to home, you learn how to adapt and also how to integrate number of cultures. And that gives you a very strong understanding of the people that you meet. And that becomes very useful later in life. I sometimes feel that I'm a fairly good, I won't say judge of character, but I understand people well. And I'm able to bond with them fairly fast because I've been able, because I've been exposed to so many different kinds of people as a child when I was growing up. And the last, of course, is the ability to take risks because your whole life is at risk and you know that as long as there's life, there is hope. So you can continue taking your chances and move on and decide what to do now and what to do in a few years to come. So, ma'am, like you were saying, your life, the transitions that you have taken, 
it was very interesting to read how you have you took a transition you became a civil servant you worked in that sector and then you moved into leadership role for private sector organizations how difficult or easy was those transaction or transitions that you took during your life you know transition is never easy but also transition is never impossible so these are the two things that one has to be prepared for when one transits but one should also recognize that if you don't make a transition or if you don't move i won't use the word move on but you if you don't take your chances perhaps you stagnate so the choice is taking your call moving on being prepared that it's going to be difficult you are lucky if it is less difficult well it could also be more difficult but finally often there is an end at the there's a light at the end of that tunnel it might not be the same tunnel that you thought you will cross you might have taken in between you might have diverted and you might have taken a totally different path than what you anticipated you would and you know it might lead you in into various different directions which is a tremendous experience of learning and you know learning and something that you can remember as what you have done with your life i think this it was very interesting because my next question was on those what kept you going because your career professional journey has been for around 40 years or more and we don't we have not seen a lot of women from your generation able to reach the positions that you have not a lot of them could 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 be because of various uh, reasons like lack of opportunity support or in some case motivation for you what was that reason that kept you going in this long and illustrious career you know initially it was just to prove myself coming from a punjabi family which had three daughters one had to be very sh- sure that what is the life that you want to lead i mean to be i mean in you know to be married and become a good household or a housewife is absolutely a delight i'm sure very many women enjoy that but somehow i didn't feel that was for me i felt that i needed to do something which gave me more exposure to the world around me and that was one focus with which i continued and there once i decided on that there was no turning back there was no turning back but more than that i think it was the ability to never give up i will give you an example i mean i will just illustrate it with a personal incident uh, i was the eldest of the three daughters and like a typical punjabi father he gave me excellent education but the moment i was out of college he said get married the moment i finished my university a very good boy was a boy <laughs> he was found for me and it was a totally an arranged marriage and the first thing that my husband uh, rather my fiance told me was that i don't think you can work after marriage i don't think i would be very happy about it so i said look we'll decide that as we go along and uh, whatever be it we decided to get married and within the next one year i was expecting my first daughter my first child 
But for me, it was always the IS at that moment. I had to sit for that exam. Whether I would get through it or not, I don't know. But I, I didn't know. But I decided I had to, otherwise I would have felt unfulfilled in my life. I mean, it's a very, very strong statement to make, but it was something that I grew up, you know, imagining and thinking of. With a daughter, pregnant with a daughter, I sat through and studied all my exams, studied, and it's a very difficult exam. On the 16th of uh, December, the exams finished. And on the 6th of January, my daughter was born. And I remember in the Allahabad center, when I would go in my, you know, in my, in a stage like a big fat elephant, all the boys around would laugh at me and say, oh, abhi ye bhi DM banne aai hai. You know, she's also come to appear for the IAS and become the district magistrate. But I didn't give up. It's for them to laugh. It's for me to laugh at them. So, uh, I, mean, it, it, I mean, no one thought I would make it. But also God was on my side. I made it in the first attempt. I don't know how difficult it would have been for me to get the second attempt with the consensus of the family and everyone else around me and with a child growing up. And I'm talking of 1978-79. But this I can tell you, even if I had not got the first attempt, I would have taken the second and the third. <laughs> I would have managed my um, I, I just just imagining myself being in that situation. <laughs> and I think it's... <laughs> a man can never imagine that situation, <laughs> but a woman would understand yeah. what I'm trying to say. I know, yeah. But yes, but you know, but you know, you all have your own constraints, you all have your own compulsions, and many of the things that you have to handle, which we as women don't have to. For example, you have to be a breadwinner. Very few men today can take a call and say, I will be a house husband, and even if my wife is doing very well, I will sit back. You yeah. have to be there and prove yourself to the society that you're earning well to look after your family. While as a woman, I at least at that time, I didn't have a compulsion. We were married into to people who were fairly well-to-do from our kind of background. And that was not a compulsion. It was always thought of as a hobby, which was for us to prove that it is much more than a hobby. It's not a hobby. It's the very intrinsic part of how I want to grow and develop in my future life. I, it resonates a lot with how my mom or a lot of my family members have gone through. So I, I was in that loop just trying to imagine. And just to build on that, before the session, we were talking about female representation in the leadership role. What do you think or how much has been the evolution of leadership roles over the years that you've seen with female representation? And what could be done to improve it further? You know, it's been a very mixed bag. And I'm talking in the Indian context at this moment. And a mixed bag, and which is really going downhill. If you look at 1990, the number of women in the workforce was about 28 or 29%. Look at it today. It's not more than 17 or 16%. The women are moving out of the workforce, both in the rural and the urban areas, more so in the urban areas. And this in spite of the fact that they are more educated women. I mean, the number of women who are graduating are men much more than what they were in earlier years. Education has gone up substantially. 
but something somewhere we have not been as a society as a nation as a country we have not been able to put our act together to ensure that we get a cake of the developing nation and this is something that as we you know people of my generation as we grow old when we struggled for it we hope to see many many more following us and following independently you know but we don't see that saying that aside there have been women who have really achieved women of excellence you know you take indra noi outside you take arundhati bhattacharya in india you take naina kitwai i mean i could name not one not two not five i could name a number of them regrettably in the last year or so there have been one or two cases where we seen you know but that could be with a man or a woman it has nothing to do i mean it's a leader it's as a leader that a person has taken a trajectory which is not an acceptable trajectory perhaps so my concern is really more foremost to get more women working to ensure that they become financially and economically independent and they realize what realize what they want to do in life and be able to do that so this is the first thing the second thing is that once you have adequate representation then we will also talk of women on the top now what we are doing is we are talking of about a handful of women and we are circulating them in a few companies and in a few leadership positions and it is become very uh, i would use the word fashionable but very righteous to say that i have i'm trying to get women in my top management it is not a logical regular evolution that comes from a pipeline there's no pipeline the pipeline is missing the pipeline is small so we build on that and from that pipeline we get the cream it will automatically come so that is what is worrying us or rather that is what worries me today i think like you said there are far and few at the top and those few at the top what common traits do you see from women leaders that reached on the top and are able to sustain so are there any few point parameters or not parameters but traits or personalities that you see helps women be on the top and then maybe sustain i won't i won't be fair if i say that there's a lot of difference between the leadership of men and leadership of women there might be some fine tuning there might be some fine tuning and uh, that might be that it's generally believed women give more empathy they are more they empathize a little more they are better in building teams but i'm not commenting on that i think even men can empathize wonderfully i'm sure even men build i'm not sure i know men build great teams so it's very difficult and it would not be right for me to say that women have certain leadership traits which men don't have but on the personal front i would say that women do things which men are not capable i mean find it more difficult to juggle with you know very many women i have seen are very successful homemakers and very successful at their job 
I'm not saying that men who are at the top are not good homemakers. I mean, not good at home. I'm sure they are excellent husbands. But somehow, the brunt of running the whole domesticity is very rarely on a man, which is inevitably on a woman. And that ability to juggle is something that I have always admired in women to do that. It takes a lot of stress and it creates a lot of expectations. It's only a very sensible woman leader on the top who realizes where to put a stop to it, how much to juggle and how much not to. And all of them I have seen very rarely get into such nitty gritties of running the family. They create excellent support systems of, but not nitty gritties of running a family because that would perhaps take too much out of their bandwidth. So that ability to juggle and balance is something that I find in women on the top, a very, very strong, which men don't inevitably need to do. Many of them do, but it's not a prerequisite for them. But for, for a woman, it's almost a prerequisite. And I had a follow-up question before we move to the last question, um, which was again a follow-up to this, was how did you balance this over the last 40 years of your career? How was how difficult, easy, or was there any time where you were like, no, I can't do this anymore? You know, in once my first daughter went out to a professional college and then when my second daughter went out to the professional college, I told my husband, I said, this is Nirvana. Now I have achieved Nirvana. I mean, they are on their own. I, you know, I, of course, it is a bond that is very, very strong. And you know, I mean, how, I mean, you know, my other, my, one of my daughters, I mean, it's a very, very close-knit family. But yeah, that was a time when I heaved a sigh of relief and I felt that now I could do unfettered what I wanted to do. That is the amount that domesticity takes out of you. But then the joy of having your nest full, of having your daughters with you, I miss that. I miss that. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not an, um, it's not as if it's, you know, really been let out of prison. It's really, mm, well, I mean, uh, loving every moment of that and then trying to make also enjoying a moment that follows after they move and move out of the nest. But it is difficult. And right from the beginning, I ensured that I put in very strong systems in place. You know, I uh, found a lady when I was in the subdivision. She's still with me. I found her in 1983 when Naya was to be born. And she had two children. I, at that time, was spending perhaps, I, government pays were not great but I was spending half or even almost more than that on her children because I put them in Don Bosco and Holy Family in the hostels to ensure her children are looked after and she helps me to look after my children. In addition to that, I had my in-laws, my mother from time to time visiting, being there. And of course, my hawksai, I tried to keep as much as that till I gained a sense of confidence in her. And now, of course, she's a surrogate mother to them. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I didn't count my expenses because, again, I said, I had the luxury and our generation, many of us had the luxury of working not because we had to get the house fire burning, but because we wanted to do it because we wanted to do it. 
and no cost to ensure that was too much. It is not so easy to get kind, those kind of supports today. And also, and a husband and a wife's pay packet makes the house run effectively. So I understand those constraints. Women do not presently today, very few of them have that kind of a, uh, you know, ability to spend or to find resources. So that is the time when the governments have to step in and things like effective childcare, crashes. How have the European countries done it? All the Scandinavian countries, excellent crashes, excellent child support systems. And we have to create that. Excellent transport systems, excellent child support systems. And unless they are not there, we are not going to ensure that our women are going to be able to work. I'm not still taking into account the family pressures, but that very many women are able to handle and they will handle. But you have to have safety for your child who you are leaving behind. And also I was in the, you know, in the civil service. So you were for the first 10 to 12 years, you were in the district when you were half the time working out of your bungalow office. Mm -hmm which is not going to be a possibility for women who do a nine to nine away from their home. So I, I, really, I really wonder how these women today are working and uh, that they are working in spite of everything is my hats off to them. Times have changed, challenges have changed, but the struggle is still the same, I feel. Yes, and perhaps accentuated. I don't know. Ours was more of a social kind. Theirs is more of the uh, logistics kind. And this brings me to the last question, which is what advice would you give to the Gen Z and the millennials listening, especially the female audience, because if they envisage the path that you have followed, what, what would be the advice that you would want to give them? I won't give it to a female audience. I will give it to the general millennials. One is have a vision. Know what you want to do. Don't drift. Don't be hesitate, hesitant to change your path. That is inevitable as you go along. But very many times, you know, a, ch a child is a wrong word to use, but a young person who's just joined the company will walk up to me and ask me, Madam, what are the leadership qualities? How do I become a leader? 21, 22, 23, learn your job, learn your skills, learn your work, learn to build, become a part of a team before you lead a team. You know, and where do you want to be finally? You know, at the same time, the millenniums want to have a great time. And why not? Even I want to have a great time. I want to travel as much as I want. I want to do everything. But what is it? And especially among the women, they want to build a family also, which is absolutely right, which is their birthright. So how are you going to have your vision very, very clear? How are you going to handle this? How much are you willing to give for what? What is your trade-off? And don't expect the others to handle it for you. You will have to handle it with your trade-offs. So that's the first thing I will say, that have your vision and the vision should be your also your implementation strategy. Followed by that, I would be, I would say that learn your job, your skill, your expertise, your communication, your networking, 
And at what stage? I will give you my example. My first 10 to 12 years was only learning my skills. I didn't have time for networking. There was too much happening back home for me to do the networking. I was only learning my skills. The moment I had more time on my hand, I started learning more and more about the things around me. That's how I built up my expertise. And that was the consolidation phase. The beginning was the learning phase, then was the consolidation phase. And once that phase was over, then that was the phase when I tried to grow as a leader, try to find my tentacles in the Bombay chamber, try to find my you know, different avenues of expression, talking in forums. And by that time, I was much freer. Also, by that time, I was very clear what I want. I mean, I was clear that this is now what I want to do. Someone else might have chosen, now I have more time, I want to write a book. Someone else might have chosen that I want to do more holidays. Someone else might have, you know, whatever. I mean, going kayaking and, you know, learning skiing and learning surfing. And why not? Each one to his own. But have your own vision clear that how much you want to do and, sorry, what you want to do and how much you want to give of your time to that. The second part I would always say is risk-taking. Take your chances. It's not easy. I mean, to move on, if you feel you're stagnating, if you feel that you're getting a better chance anywhere, take your chances. First of all, get a solid skill base. And once you have that, it is possible. It's possible to change over. Do that. And not every move will be right. But don't regret that. Perhaps the first move might not be right. The third might be. But don't stick on to something in which you are not happy. And the third, I would say, is that battles are not won by, you know, I mean, internal fights are not won by swords and the pen. They are won by the tone of your voice. Learn how to speak, learn how to communicate, and learn to keep a balance in your talks. This is where I find youngsters, even I did when I was young, becoming agitated. Give me a sec. That it is how you come across to people is how they trust you. And that is what we tend to forget. The tone of your voice. Learn to ensure that that is how it should be with people that are around you, with your team, with your bosses, with your subordinates, with your support staff. And it makes things much, much easier. Trust me. I hope that I was just listening and I was thinking, oh, I hope this does not end soon. But like all good things, we are at the close of this session. I hope we can have more interactions with you in the future. But until then, for the viewers, thank you so much and meet you next time. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And all the best to everyone who is hearing it and my good wishes.